This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Without any further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. George Rutherford. Dr. Rutherford is board certified in pediatrics and uh, preventive care. He is director of the Institute of, uh, for Global Health. And he is the co-chair, correct me if I'm wrong in any of these titles, George, co-chair of the Chancellor's Task Force on Ebola. So we're going to hear a little bit about that. Um, so uh, he's going to be speaking to us tonight about emerging biological threats. So Dr. George Rutherford, thank you. So this is like much better than cardiology, okay? So you know, it's much more, far more interesting. I, don't show this to the cardiologist, okay? Uh, so I, uh, so Clement, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you all for coming I wanted to walk you through my world, which is a world of microbes and their interaction with humans and animals and plants and all sorts of stuff. Uh, And just to give you a little taste of uh, what's to come, um, there are a number of, this stuff is in the news not infrequently. Um, This is an outbreak of Salmonella uh, Heidelberg, uh, which uh, caused 338 cases in 20 states, 40% of the people were hospitalized. Uh, there was a common uh, gene that coded for antibiotic resistance that allowed people to link these cases together and understand that they came from a single source, which was a commercial chicken farm. And you can see that the cases were uh, predominantly in, um, in the West and with California having the most cases. You also know about Ebola, and I'll spend a fair amount of time talking about Ebola at the end. But Ebola is another example of an emerging infectious disease threat. There had never been a case in these countries before. There had been a single case in Cote d'Ivoire, which had occurred right about here. Um, But this was out of the blue. Uh, And these countries are uh, not, uh, had been, uh, had had, uh, at the end of a decade of civil war with their infrastructure completely stripped. And this thing, predictably, was, has been a catastrophe of the first order. The, uh, another one you may have heard about is the hantavirus pulmonary uh, syndrome. Hantavirus is a, uh, uh, is a virus, obviously, uh, that's spread by, uh, by, uh, by mice, and it's primarily transmitted in mouse urine. Uh, a very closely related virus uh, was, uh, uh, was caused Korean hemorrhagic fever, which was a big problem for troops in the Korean War. Uh, this is a, there been a, well, there was in 2012 there were nine cases in Yosemite in Camp Curry I guess we should say in Camp C um, and uh, three of these cases were uh, were fatal uh, so this is not a you know inconsequential uh, disease and I think the lesson here is is that we get deeper and deeper into uh, nature and further and further out of our own ecosystem the more we'll come into contact with these agents so. The Institute of Medicine, which is part of the National Academy of Sciences that publishes big reports and sort of puts a lot of wattage on these subjects, took on the issue of emerging infectious diseases in the early 1990s. And this was sort of right at the, at the, on the heels of HIV infection, and just as multidrug-resistant tuberculosis was starting to, uh, starting to soar. And so they got um, – so they and CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, in my world, there are two CDCs. There's the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. So, so I'm talking about the former uh, here. So luckily, we're not going to have to talk about the other CDC tonight. 
They, uh, so the, the definition that the Institute of Medicine chose is that diseases whose incidence in humans has increased in the last 20 years uh, or threatens to increase in the future, usually due to demographic or environmental uh, factors. And I think we could all sit here and scroll through, the, uh, scroll through this and think of the, uh, of the new diseases or the reemerging diseases that have been in the, uh, in the press. This new enterovirus, which causes uh, paralysis in young children, sort of a polio-like uh, syndrome. Dengue fever, uh, which is a very common uh, arboviral, meaning arthropod-borne virus, mosquito-borne virus, that can cause uh, severe symptoms, has been uh, reemerging after being almost eliminated uh, in the Americas, and now there is domestic transmission in the Florida Keys and in southern Texas, and we're having to screen the blood supply for it. So this is sort of not a great success story. Ebola, you know about. HIV, you know about. Hepatitis C, when I was in medical school, this was called non-A, non-B hepatitis, and was real kind of a catch, catch-all term for a bunch of different uh, infections. But we now have reached a point where we can cure hepatitis C, cure, cure, as in sterilize it, uh, sterilize patients, not, not in that sense, but you know, get rid of the infection forever. Uh, with about 12 weeks of therapy. Now, it's a little expensive, but, you know, it's a pretty good success story. The hantavirus, which has this unlikely name of sin nombre virus, which is named after the canyon where, yeah, you got it, yeah, after the canyon where it was first isolated on the Navajo uh, reservation. You hear a lot about influenza A. Now, so how many people got influenza vaccine this year? Right? Ooh, I see a couple of... But, the, you know, so what goes in the influenza vaccine is a bit hit and miss, and you're seeing a miss uh, this year with some lower levels of protection against one of the strains. But I'll talk quite a bit more about influenza A. Of everything on this list, this is the thing that's going to kill you. It's going to have the most cases. It's going to cause the most morbidity, I mean, at the population level. Um, and this is what we worry about most of all. Um, there, there's all the other exotica. MERS stands for Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, a disease of dromedaries that can be transmitted to humans with, uh, and from humans to humans, and there are probably three or four dozen cases in the world. But, you know, nonetheless, this pushes all the, all the, uh, uh, all the panic buttons and on and on and on. And then we see things like diphtheria reemerge. Diphtheria has been essentially completely controlled um, in, the, uh, in the United States, basically in the, developing, in the developed world uh, since the 20s. And I, uh, I've only seen a single case uh, of diphtheria, and that was wound diphtheria, which is a, a different form of it. When the Soviet Union collapsed and people stopped getting vaccinated, diphtheria spread uh, over the new Russian uh, Republic, and there were several thousand cases there. Uh, this is a disease that can kill you. It's, it, while you think of it as being a disease that's in your throat and you have these special, this sort of very characteristic pattern of, of a throat infection, it releases a uh, toxin that's toxic to the heart, and that's, what, in fact, what kills you. Um, as from spillover from Russia, there are about 100 cases in California in the early 1990s. So this is an example of what happens when vaccination programs go away. These organisms are ubiquitous, and they will come back. Have anybody, everybody's ever lived in the, in the San Joaquin Valley here in the audience, like in Bakersfield? So this is valley fever, right, and Coccidioides imidis. Coccidioides imidis is a fungal disease. It's a fungus 
It grows in the soil, and people are incidentally infected. They, the the uh, fungus doesn't have to go through any kind of mammalian stage in order to reproduce itself. It's perfectly happy living in the soil. But when the soil is disturbed, uh, it can cause, it can, the spores can become airborne, and you inhale it, and it causes a disease like tuberculosis. Uh, they can also spread and get into your brain and your bones and skin and a quite unpleasant thing. It, it's interesting. There's been a resurgence of coccidioidomycosis or valley fever over the last oh, decade or so, uh, and it's a little unclear why, that's, why that is, what environmentally has changed. Part of it is that people who are non-immune who didn't grow up in the area have moved there. Uh, if you grow up in, say, Kern County or Kings County or Tulare County, uh, you will have acquired this disease in childhood and be immune for life, if, and probably very unlikely to cause symptoms. Uh, if you get it as an adult, you got some, you know, it's a little bit tougher. And now not everybody gets sick, but especially as people start to move out into the valley um, from Los Angeles who've never really been exposed to this, or people start to retire to the valley, believe it or not, people actually retire to Bakersfield. I mean, I realize it's tough, <laughs> tough to fathom, but. Um, you know, they get there and they're not immune. And, and the, the, the real people who retire to the valley are all the state prisoners who get pulled up out of Watts and wherever and moved out to where all the new prison construction is, where the land's cheap, which is in the southern San Joaquin Valley. Um, and so there's lots of problems in the other CDC's world uh, with, uh, with, with the prison population. Um, this is something we've studied fairly extensively uh, in my group. And I actually kind of think that the switch from, from cotton farming to carrot farming in Kern County. Kern County is the world's largest producer of carrots now. And all you have to do is think of the Bugs Bunny cartoons, you know, pulling the carrots up out of the ground. And you can really understand how an automatic carrot picking machine, which of course they have, right, that goes along and yanks these carrots up out of the first 12 inches of topsoil. Could disturb, the, could disturb the soil and get these organisms up into the air. There was a really famous outbreak in the late 70s where there was a huge dust storm in the valley. And I don't know how many of you have driven kind of up to the grapevine and uh, to, heading towards the grapevine and been caught in one of these big dust storms. But these things are impressive. Uh, and the first case actually presented in a, in a gorilla at the Flyshacker Zoo that was how far that, that, uh, that plume of dust uh, extended, and there were cases in Marin County, completely non-endemic area. But if you can put this stuff up in the air, people can inhale it, and animals too. So why are these diseases emerging? So the first thing, I, and I'll talk about these points, the first is global travel, right? I have to go on Saturday. I'm going to go to Europe for, you know, I don't know, 10 days, come back. Later in May, I have to go to Bangkok for two days. Okay? This is the sort of stuff that was difficult to do in your grandparents' time or in your great-grandparents' time. You couldn't just do this stuff. So we can move people around very rapidly. We can move products around very rapidly. And um, you know, So if you had cantaloupe for breakfast this morning, I can almost guarantee you it was on the ground in Guatemala 48 hours ago. Also, when we, move stuff, when we move stuff around in airplanes, we can move mosquitoes around in airplanes. And so if you, do you guys know about West Nile virus, which was a European, uh, African disease? And it's now a huge problem in North America. The first case was in Queens County, New York, and the reason is because that's where Kennedy Airport is. So it was a mosquito that got off the plane at uh, Kennedy and it lived in the, in the cargo hold. 
or in the cabin, who knows. Uh, the first case in California was in Inglewood, which is, of course, across the street from LAX. Right? So you know, we can move people around who are, uh, who are in the incubation period of disease, which is what you've seen with Ebola. We can move food around. We can move mosquitoes around. There's a globalization of the food supply and central processing of food so that when we get to a chicken farm and we're producing a zillions of ch- chickens and, and they get infected, that can get spread all over the country. The CDC loves to, my CDC loves to uh, investigate outbreaks of various different kinds of uh, bacteria that come from processed chickens or eggs or whatever. And they always turn up to be in like in 24 states and, you know, it's always... Costco has to come and do a recall and, you know, blah, blah. The third thing that's going on is population growth and increased uh, urbanization and crowding. Now, so if you've ever been in downtown Vancouver where the, they've decided to build a big central core, that's fine. It takes a lot of pressure off the land. It makes a lot of sense from a transportation standpoint. It's all good. If you do that in Calcutta, it's not good, right? You're cramming people together. You get zillions of people living in small shacks. You have their, their living cheek by jowl with their animals. Uh, and the diseases the animals get can be spread to people. And the, people, the diseases people get can get, be spread to the animals, and they can be spread to other people. So those are very intensive uh, uh, scenarios, settings for uh, rapid transmission of respiratory infections. And one of the reasons tuberculosis dropped dramatically in the early 20th century in this country was that the housing stock improved as people started to move out of, out of uh, really crowded urban slums like in the Lower East Side of New York um, to more open areas. There are big population movements due to civil wars, famines, and other man-made or natural uh, disasters where people will bring diseases from one area to another area. Uh, I think one of the things that's really underappreciated is the human manipulation of the environment through irrigation, deforestation, reforestation that really changed the habitats of animals and their parasites, like the, the insects that live on them, the bacteria that live in them. Those things have changed a lot. And, for instance, Lyme disease uh, really was thought to have entered human populations because in the, in the Northeast, where the first, when the first old-growth forest was cut down, it removed habitat for bears, which is like, okay, so, well, what that means is there's going to be a population explosion of deer, because that's what the bears eat, right? Um, and it actually makes sense, believe me. Uh, and so the, um, so there was a, so when the forest grew back in, there was cover for deer, there was forage for deer, and the deer population went through the roof. They start to, and people start to move out into those areas, and the ticks that live on deers could start living on people as well. The third thing is uh, human behavior, such as injection drug use and risky sexual behavior. Injection drug use, you could say risky sexual behavior has gone way back in time, but believe me, injection drug use has not. It was probably first mentioned in Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, this is not something that went on in the 15th and 16th centuries. Um, we've also had the real miracle of antibiotics. And along with that, there's a parallel miracle in agriculture for pesticides uh, and various other things that uh, kill micro, uh, even larger things like worms and stuff that can threaten crops. The more and more we use of those, the greater and greater pressure, for, in a sort of Darwinian sense, 
uh, we create on, on these organisms to mutate and to in order to survive. Um, and so when I was a kid, whenever you got a cold, you always got penicillin, which was probably the worst thing you could possibly do. Now we can barely we can you know barely use penicillin for anything. I mean, we still only use it as a first line drug for for syphilis, which I guess I didn't have as a kid probably. <laughs> and then the other thing is that people move, and people not only will you sort of deforest and reforest, but people move to places where they haven't lived before. Um, and as these um, as you start moving in into these tropical rainforests and this these new habitats, there's all sorts of chances of coming into contact with um, insects and animals and their parasites that you've never really experienced before. This is actually my favorite graph. Okay? And that what this shows is across the x-axis at the bottom are years. Right? These are calendar years. Right? And this is the number of days to circumnavigate the Earth. Okay? So in 1850, it took about a year to, to circumnavigate the globe. So when Jules Verne rode around the world in 80 days here in about 1890, so they were sort of pushing the edge of, the, the edge of that envelope. And at the same time, while, the, while our ability to go around the world has vastly increased, the population's vastly increased uh, as well. So we have a very mobile society with lots and lots and lots and lots and lots more people in it than we did back in the day. And this is really, you know, and so global travel, I think, is a real factor in the spread of disease. So let me talk a little bit about West Nile virus. Um, this was an arbovirus. Again, arbo means arthropod-born virus. Arthropods are like insects. It was previously localized to Africa. And, the West, and the, uh, we actually work a lot, and we have a field station in the laboratory that first isolated, which is the Uganda, Uganda Virus Research uh, Institute. It was really previously localized to Africa and Western Asia, sort of the Middle East and Southern Europe. Uh, and it can be a bad disease, right? And it causes fever and, uh, you know, brain disease. And about 5% of people die. And it was first detected, as I said, in Queens, uh, in humans. Uh, and at the same time, there was a kind of plague of crows at the, at the Bronx Zoo, uh, where crows would... Uh, be falling out of the sky to the ground. And the reason they were falling out of the sky was they had brain disease from this, from this disease. And a smart veterinary pathologist who worked at the zoo figured this out. Everybody else was chasing dengue or something else. Uh, we have a mosquito that is perfectly competent for transmitting uh, this. And then we have birds. And birds, you don't think of birds as being really part of the ecosystem, but birds can move stuff around big time. Now, especially when we start talking about flu, and I'll show you this. Migratory birds can spread these infections far and wide, and there's no stopping it. Um, and so we have uh, you know, basically spread over the entire United States from West Nile virus infection in birds, and humans are incidental hosts along the way. And just to give you a, a feel uh, for it, this blue distribution was where it was before. This was really where it was first discovered. And then over here is the cycle where you have uh, uh, mosquitoes and birds. This is kind of how it just goes around in its regular cycle. But humans can get infected, and horses can get infected as well. And, in fact, a lot of the research on this is driven by uh, sort of the equine world, uh, where these horses are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, and the veterinarians and their owners want a vaccine uh, for them. 
So if you have a disease that affects horses, you're in good shape because someone will push for the vaccine. And just to give you an idea of the numbers of cases uh, we're talking about, you know, we're sort of on the order of, you know, 2,500 cases a year in humans uh, in the United States. And this shows you what the, where the density is. And it's really kind of everywhere except Alaska and Hawaii. It was originally mostly on the East Coast, but now it's really kind of locked into both the Southwest as well as into the kind of Mississippi-Missouri Valley uh, distributions. So this is something to avoid. Now, another emerging infection that we always talk about is dengue fever. And, and dengue is a, another arbovirus, and it's endemic across the whole belt, tropical belt of the, uh, of the world. And it has these, it really follows the range of these two mosquitoes, Aedes uh, aegypti and Aedes albopictus. So, then the, the, you know, like, so, okay, yeah, yeah. But as, the, as climate changes, the range of these mosquitoes increases. As it becomes warmer, as it becomes wetter, it's harder, hard to imagine being wetter uh, right now. But lots of areas in the world are wetter. And um, I would just remind you that California uh, was a malaria state until the 1920s, uh, when the Kern River and a lot of the tributaries of the San Joaquin River got uh, banked up and the, and the marshes were drained. There was uh, tons of mosquitoes, and there was, it was easily sustained mal- malaria, another mosquito-borne disease. So the concern is, is as climate changes and you introduce habitat for these mosquitoes, that they, can, um, that they can come back. And as you see here, they're really all up here into uh, Sonora uh, and into southern Texas and here into the, uh, into the Keys. But it's a, as I said, it's a big problem. Uh, it's a big and growing problem. We were within probably a year of eliminating this in the Americas, um, and the money ran out in the 1960s, and it just the whole program got dropped, and you can see how it's come back now. So those are sort of big picture things, you know, mosquitoes, habitat changes, climate change. There's also the foibles of human behavior, which you cannot imagine how crazy this stuff gets. This is my favorite. This is one of my favorite cases. There was uh, there's a disease called monkeypox, and monkeypox is a pox virus like smallpox. And the reason this comes to medical attention is that the lesions look exactly like smallpox. And this started to happen right at the right in the at the time that people were, you know, seriously concerned about bioterrorist incidents. So people got on this instantly. So there were 71 cases of an African of this of, of this pox virus, a monkeypox virus, that occurred in the Midwest U.S. in May and June of 2003. And the risk factor was that people had pet kids got pet prairie dogs, these little kind of, you know what prairie dogs are. Of course, these things aren't prairie dogs at all. They just kind of look like them, right? Um, And they'd been all, uh, they'd come from a single distributor. This is about centralization of supply. Um, And they were actually uh, a a whole series of African rodents. uh, And one of them had this this, uh, pox virus, and it spread it around this distribution uh, chain. Um, so this is a clinical, clinically, this is a febrile illness with a rash with these very characteristic lesions. You know, vesicles are fluid-filled lesions, and umbilicated ones are things that look like donuts. That's, the classic, that's a classic viral rash. So these things typically came in a, at an abrasion, so when kids cut their fingers by 
holding these stupid rats, you know. And, um, but, you know, it's like, it's, what the hell were they thinking, you know? Um, and, you know, there are were, there were two cases that were severe. This actually had to be treated with smallpox vaccine. Uh, and we broke out all the big anti-smallpox drugs that nobody likes to use because they, they turn your kidneys into rocks and stuff. It's, this is really bad stuff. There was actually secondary transmission, person-to-person transmission or on the playground. We, and this became a big deal about quarantining animals to keep it from spreading uh, further. And this is what the outbreak finally uh, looks like with this uh, introduction here. And I'll show you some pictures of these things, like Gambian giant rats, okay? It's like, this is what I'm putting on my Christmas list this year, you know? And, and you can see how these things spread all, uh, all over, okay? So here's the big guy, the, um, the Gambian giant rat. Anybody have any f- a feel for how big a Gambian giant rat is? With the, this much as tail, but this much as the body, you know? And you see these kids texting each other, you know, they're hiding on the piano. Yeah, guess what I got for my birthday? I got, this, I got a prairie dog, you know? And, and then these dormice mice, which are little guys. I mean, okay, okay, I'll give you that one. But, you know, you know, this is sort of the sort of stuff, this is kind of like messing around with Mother Nature that should probably not be going on. Now, that's all sort of kind of gee whiz stuff and, uh, you know, the, about the foibles of humankind. But the thing that we really worry about in infectious disease epidemiology is emerging in, is uh, influenza. And in the 20th century, there was a massive outbreak of influenza at the end of World War II that may have killed, well, it minimally killed 20 million people when the world's population was about 2 billion. So that's 1% worldwide mortality. And that's the sort of stuff that keeps people like me up at night worrying. Influenza, and this is not when you say, well, I got stomach flu. You know, influenza is a, is a real disease, real syndrome. It's a family, it's a small family of viruses. Uh, and influenza causes fever, muscle pains, and cough. If you don't have fever, you don't have influenza. If you don't have muscle pains, you don't have influenza. If you don't have respiratory symptoms, and I'm not talking a cold, I'm talking you know, chest symptoms, you don't have influenza. Now, influenza is a disease of ducks in nature, of waterfowl. Yeah, okay, geese, okay, swans, but you know, it's basically ducks, right? Um, and it accidentally infects birds and other mammals. In, in ducks, it's transmitted through, uh, you know, uh, through the animals defecating in lakes and stuff, and then other animals drinking the water. So it's fecal-oral transmission, which is completely different than it is in humans. Right? So you get ducks that are flying around, right? and they um, can spread the disease uh, to chickens uh, and other poultry, like turkeys and stuff, to pigs and horses and humans. And the reason, the way they spread it is by sneezing. And I don't know how many of you have been handling ducks recently, but they have two nostrils at the, top of their, uh, at the top of their bills. And when they sneeze, they sneeze like humans sneeze. And they create this vapor of junk above them, right? Um, so, and the problem is not so much duck-to-human transmission, although that has been a problem, or duck-to-chicken transmission, it's that when you get all these species together, you can get different pieces of different circulating strains of influenza virus, and you cause these, they're so-called resortant uh, viruses. 
So the density at which these three species, humans, ducks, and pigs, and chickens, four species, live is where influenza, new influenza mutations, they're not truly mutations, but think of it that way, will arise. So this means southeast China. And that has a lot to do with how easily they're transmitted. Here's the highly scientific CDC um, you know, <laughs> demonstration of how this happens. So you got Daffy Duck up here, right? And they got this virus here. They can spread it directly to humans. And that happens from time to time. It causes fairly bad disease. But typically, they spread it here to the pig, right? And then the pig also gets infected at the same time with a human virus. And what will happen is that these, these are RNA fragments. There are eight different fragments. Is that you'll get some from one, from, um, from one from the ducks and a little bit from the humans, and you'll come out with a new virus, with new makeup. We'll have different proteins on the outer coat of the virus, which is what the immune system recognizes. And so there are, these are the different proteins. Uh, there are 15 different hemagglutinins and nine different neuraminidases, so there's nine times 15 different possibilities. So we're trying to guess, when we put the influenza vaccine together every year, we're trying to guess three of them, which three are going to be the most common. So this is how it works. Um, is that you start over here, this is time, you'll have a new strain that gets introduced. And so you'll have a whole bunch of cases, and then it'll go down, and then you'll catch a few more people who didn't get infected the first year, and it'll go down, and then a few more, and then it'll go down a few more, a few more. Right? And meanwhile, population immunity builds up uh, to this. Um, these are the, this is this thing over here, the mean um, population antibody level. But over here, something else happens. So every 10 years or so, something else happens, and there's a, now there's a new resortant virus, influenza A virus, and you'll get a new peak here, and then we'll start repeating the cycle, and you start developing antibody uh, here. So that's the kind of classic way that influenza pandemics occur. It's from these resortant viruses that people do not recognize, their immune systems uh, don't recognize. And that's the that's what we, when we're asked the question by our students, this is what we say happens to cause influenza pandemics. Now, it's, of course, more complicated than that. And sort of the two big epidemics of, of that people remember, the 1919 epidemic and the more recent 2009 epidemic, were probably caused by direct transmission from, um, I mean, the 2009 is a little bit up in the air. But the uh, 1919 was probably, probably caused by direct transmission from a bird to a human. So there's, and it didn't arise in China. It's thought to have either arisen, you'll like this, either at Fort Riley, Kansas, uh, or at San Quentin. That's interesting, huh? How they figured that out, who knows? So human-to-human um, -human transmission is by respiratory contact, right? And so you think of um, there, there's sort of two different ways of, so in our world we subdivide this up. And it has to do with the diameter of the droplets. So if I sneeze, you guys here in the first row are probably safe because it's going to hit the ground before it gets to you. But if somebody were sitting here and I sneezed, the droplets would they'd probably hit them. Now, if it hits them in the knee, no big deal until they take their hand, mess around with their knee or their partner's knee, in your case possibly, and then take it and rub it in their eye. And then they've directly inoculated the virus or, or you know, rub their nose or something. This is a, so when we talk about droplet spread, and droplets have a lot of virus in them. OSHA, says, Federal OSHA says six feet. Uh, the World Health Organization says a meter. 
but it's something like that. And this stuff can stay on surfaces as well. And depending on the characteristic of the virus, it can hang around. So with SARS, the severe acute respiratory syndrome that devastated China um, 10 years ago, uh, the first big cluster was probably from kind of indirect contact like that in an elevator from pushing the buttons. And we call that fomite spread. Also, there's respiratory, sorry, there's airborne spread. And what airborne spread means is that the droplets stay suspended. They're small enough that they'll, that they'll stay suspended in the air uh, indefinitely. That's obviously somewhat more dangerous, uh, but, the, but it seems to be more the droplets that are the primary vector of, these, of influenza A. If you look at deaths from infectious diseases in the United States, this is what it looks like. And this is up to 1996, but the point is, is that there's this massive peak here in 1919. And that's the, the so-called Spanish influenza. Uh, and it was a devastating disease, and your parents may have told you about it. It's, you know, people would go to work and come home dead. I mean, they just never would come home. Uh, and it was a, it was the surprising part was that it was a disease of middle-aged, young and middle-aged adults, and not a disease of the elderly, and not particularly disease of the young, which was very surprising and kind of completely different. So this is, I'm just going to walk you through what some of these things look like. So here we have this original 1918 um, transmission from a duck or from whatever to somebody, and it's got this makeup of these different uh, RNA uh, genetic segments. And then in around 1957, there was another uh, virus that came from birds, and this is the pig and bird thing, right? And you pick up a couple of, and you switch out a couple of these DNA, RNA strands. So it creates a virus that has different proteins, right, that the, that the immune system can't recognize. And then about 11 years later, the same thing happened again with another avian virus, and you resort it into something that looks more like, uh, like this. And um, this has, this has some elements of the original 1918 strain, some elements of the, of the uh, 1957 strain, and some elements of this 1968 strain. And this is H3N2, which is what's in the vaccines, which didn't work very well this year. Because while we talk about these things as big kind of changes, also between the years, there's small changes that go on. And there's small, there small mutations. And that's what makes predicting the viruses so difficult. Okay, so the, these are the big, just to give you a feel for the numbers here, uh, the 1918-1919 flu, the minimum uh, estimate was 20 million. Uh, the high estimate's 100 million, uh, and there are 550,000 deaths in the United States. Uh, at, in 1918, there are probably 100, uh, 100 million people that live in the United States. The uh, 1957 isolate caused 2 million deaths worldwide and 70,000 in the U.S., and then the 68 strain, which I remember because I was in high school, caused about a million deaths worldwide and 34,000 in the U.S. So these are the kind of big, big pandemics that we worry about. This is what you should worry about, though. Just for the regular flu, not these brand new strains, but just the stuff that's floating around, causes about 36,000 deaths in the United States every year. Okay. So this is why you need to get flu shots. Some of the parts of the flu shot work this year. Others were less, less, less uh, robust. But it's, a, um, it's something to be seriously cognizant of. 
Now, going back to the 1918 flu, it was, primary, it was probably most likely transmitted directly from fowl to humans, probably a duck, the first known case. Where in, it was in a big military recruit uh, depot in Fort Riley, Kansas, uh, in March 1918. Um, and from there, it spread uh, to, to France and to the continent, and then was brought home by troops coming home from World War uh, I. It may have uh, infected up to 50% of the world's population <coughs> at the time. This is like, this is a big deal, right? Uh, with death rates of somewhere between 20 and 100 million uh, uh, people. In the Indian Army, which was fighting in France as well as in the Middle East for the British, um, the mortality rate was as high as 20%. It kind of came and went in about nine months. There was a a fascinating article um, that the people at the Harvard History of Medicine Department did where they went back and they looked at mortality in U.S. and Canadian cities uh, in the winter of 1918-1919 and looked and see, saw how many people died and kind of what the patterns were. And then they went and they matched it to um, public health measures that were undertaken by each city individually to see what, what worked and what didn't work. And it was a fascinating thing. And that cities that had very aggressive campaigns to push what's euphemistically referred to these days as social distancing um, meaning they closed schools, they closed I mean, the actual stuff, they closed were things we'd never think of, like billiard parlors and stuff, you know, church socials. Uh, but they closed stuff, and they kind of kept people apart. So you can imagine, imagine that in San Francisco, right? No Giants games, um, no Muni, right? You, you know, did anybody come here on Muni besides me? Um, it's, you know, you can imagine what that would do in terms of creating social distance. Um, in Liberia and Sierra Leone, uh, now people, you know, there's no hand, there's no, no more handshaking. Everybody's like bumps elbows or, you know, says hi or something. But the St. Louis was actually the, the, the real poster child for how to do this right. Here's some scenes from um, 1918, 1919. I don't know if you can see this, but the conductor here has a mask on, has a, has a face mask on. This is the, for those of you who live in Oakland, this is the Kaiser Convention Center at the foot of Lake Merritt that was turned into a hospital. This is actually my favorite picture from the history of infectious diseases. This is Broad Street in Philadelphia. Anybody from Philadelphia? Okay, so I can say whatever I want. So this is Broad Street in Philadelphia, and this was a war bond parade in um, September of 1918. This was a huge amplification event. Um, This uh, flew in Philadelphia took off like crazy after this. And the interesting thing about this picture is that this building here, here is the Bellevue Stratford Hotel, which is where Legionnaire's disease was first described in 1976. So, so you get sort of two big landmarks of infectious disease epidemiology here. And this gives you an idea of the mortality curves in, in America and Europe in these, in these years. And this is probably more closely seen here, if you look at hospitalizations and death, and this is at a, a U.S. Army training camp in the U.S. I'm sorry, it's 37 camps. So see the spring wave here? This becomes important when we talk about what happened in 2009. See, there was an early bump here of hospitalizations, and these are all young guys, so you don't really see the same kind of mortality rates until later. But you see this kind of April, March-April wave of disease here. 
and then this huge wave uh, back in the fall. And when we come to talk about the 2009 uh, influenza epidemic that started in Mexico, it's, you'll see that there are very similar patterns, at least coming at, at the start, which is what set off all the alarms. The other thing is, is that if you look here, this is the mortality curve. And the dotted line was in prior years where you have this U-shaped distribution. Right? So it's the very young and the very old. What happened, you have that here as well, but what happens is you have this big bump in the middle. Right? And those are, that's, that was the part that was so different about this. Um, and these are uh, data from the, uh, from the U.S. This isn't you know, soldiers overseas that you know, sort of a, they're severely sort of compromised at the end of the war. This is, these are data from the U.S. So this became kind of a real interesting thing. Um, everybody developed a lot of interest in, in this in the late 1990s. Uh, and there are two separate expeditions undertaken to try and recover the virus one to Alaska and one to Spitsbergen, which is a Norwegian island up in the, almost in the Arctic Ocean. And that's because the, the bodies were buried in permafrost. So they've been essentially in the freezer for, you know, 100 years or 80 years. Uh, and both, uh, both groups recovered virus. And people were able to reassemble the virus and use it for experiments. This was very controversial about whether the sequence should be, the genetic sequence should be published. Uh, and it, was a, it caused a lot of really serious ethical kind of discussions about whether you want to put this out uh, where it could be in anybody's hands. What turns out is that there uh, was one gene, uh, there are three genes that are called polymerases. Polymerases read RNA and create proteins from them. Um, and so the, the efficient, uh, the polymerases in these things, in, the, in these 1918 isolates, are were very efficient, which means that they transcribed the RNA very quickly, and they created lots more viral particles. Um, and so that was thought to be what underla underlay this big difference in mortality. So moving on, um, so we have this, you know, the Asian flu in 1957 and the Hong Kong flu in 1968, and everybody's starting, starting in about 1979, everybody's saying, when's the next one coming? And we're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. In 1997, there was a new isolate, an H5N1, that arose in Hong Kong. Um, and there were some, the first, um, the first human cases were in, in children. Uh, by November, there had been seven, 17 cases in Hong Kong. Uh, and these were all directly, mostly, almost all of them are directly linked to the live poultry markets in Hong Kong. Uh, there was a thought that there might have been a single case of human-to-human -human transmission in HCW's healthcare worker and healthcare worker. And to quell this <clears throat> outbreak, there were a um, million and a half chickens that were slaughtered in Hong Kong to contain the outbreak. So it goes away um, for about seven years. And then in December of, of, 20, of 2003, there start to be new outbreaks in poultry and in wild birds. Um, and, you know, quanti quantifying how many birds have died is a little complicated, but there have been lots of cases and, and lots of spread of this. <clears throat> there have been about 500 human cases, uh, and this has a high case fatality rate with about 300 deaths, so about 60% of people who get it die. Uh, and it's spread primarily in Asia, but then across into um, 
uh, into Africa and at least in the birds into uh, Europe. There are potentially some human-to-human transmissions, but almost all of this was direct um, chicken-to-human transmission. Okay? But there didn't seem to be reassorting that this was just a disease, uh, an epizootic, which is what we call epidemics in, bir- in animals. This is an epizootic in which humans were accidentally being infected, but birds are so ubiquitous and raising chickens is so ubiquitous you know, that there are going to be some number of spillover cases. And this is, um, there finally has been a case in, um, in North America. There hadn't been for a very, very long time. Uh, and this is the cases in 2012. You can see they're still kind of concentrated here in South and Southeastern um, Asia. In humans, the cases were, uh, this is interesting. There were, there were cases here, a few scattered cases here in Africa. And they were probably associated with bringing um, um, fighting, you know, cockfighting uh, roosters into the countries for cockfights. Um, and there were actually, this was one of the weirder things you see. Um, remember I said how, how ducks have nostrils at the top of their bills? So do chickens. And when they have these cockfights, you know, they put spurs on them. Right? And so they scratch each other, and the birds will get their eyes cut, and they'll bleed, and they'll bleed down, and, the, and, the, you know, and the, the blood will coagulate in their nostrils, and they can't breathe as well. And so the corner man, you know, just like in Rocky Three or whatever, they'll put the bird's beak in their mouth during the rounds and suck the blood out of their mouth, okay? I mean, out of their noses, right? Now, it's sort of hard to imagine a more efficient way of transmitting a respiratory virus from a bird to a human than that. And that's what these little sort of scattered little isolate you know, outbreaks probably represent. Now, so the question for us is, is this really going to get to North America? Now, there's a single case in Mexico. You know, who knows what that's all about? But there certainly hasn't been spread in, these, uh, in, the, in, in big bird populations yet. If it comes to North America, we'll probably be in northern pintail ducks. And the reason is, is that they share a flyway with, with birds and ducks that come up the East Asian coast, and they all come together. You know, Alaska's a big state, but... There is some mixing in, in, on lakes, freshwater lakes, um, in Alaska in the summertime, and there's certainly the potential for transmission. Because these guys, these northern pintails, migrate that way, we thought that's how they would most likely get uh, into the western U.S. and into, uh, into California. And when I worked at the state health department, our sort of worst-case scenario was that this would be the first case uh, in California. With, this, with, a, with, a famous, with a famous duck actor who sort of bites it. So um, that's, it really hasn't quite happened that way yet. We have, we, have in, we have measles, we have other stuff at Disneyland, but not quite that. The, this, the uh, um, swine flu, uh, this is not the swine flu of 1976 that Gerald Ford you know, got uh, unelected over. Uh, but this is the Mexican, uh, the, this 2009 Mexican uh, flu. There are circulating strains of flu in swine as well. They're very susceptible to it. Um, and especially in these large kind of farming operations, uh, it can spread quickly among, uh, among pigs. Right? Um, there are a handful of cases, you know, it's like in the 4-H club people and stuff. In the U.S., maybe a dozen cases a year. 
But it's nothing that people get very, I mean, if you're a pig farmer, it's something you get upset about. If you're not, it doesn't really kind of tip the balance much. But in 1976, remember, remember what I showed you about the 1918, 1919 influenza. In 1976, there was an outbreak of a swine flu in Fort Dix, New Jersey. Uh, this was in a military population, uh, and it started in the spring. Remember what I said? So most influenza is in the wintertime when people are inside and congregating together. This was a severe concern because this was at about the time you're expecting the next big mutation to come down. Um, there, were a, there was a huge press to develop. I don't know if you guys remember all this, right, with President Ford getting vaccinated. And it was – so. oh, this is a good question. So who was the – so uh, uh, Jimmy Carter actually vaccinated people for, with polio vaccine. Who was, the other, who was the president before Carter who vaccinated people? Sorry? Anybody got it? Yeah. Two centuries off. It was Thomas Jefferson. It was, it was gave uh, smallpox vaccine. People. What about polio vaccine? Well, they didn't, I mean, they didn't physically give it, right? Yeah. You know, I thought that's that a good little fact that you can take home with you. So this pushed all the buttons uh, about the newly emergent. This was the flu that people were waiting for. This was going to be 1918, 1919 revisited. It, it, was a, it, was a, it started in the spring. It started in military populations. Um, there was a rush to develop a vaccine. Um, people, 40 million people got vaccinated. And then all of a sudden, people started to see cases of a, of a paralytic disease called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is, causes a syndrome you know, not dissimilar from polio. I mean, there are all sorts of little differences, but not dissimilar from polio, even though it resolves slowly. So you, polio, you never get better. With this, you get better gradually. Um, and there were 30 deaths as a, because of um, a Guillain-Barre syndrome. So that really, you know, that, that put the kibosh on a lot of this stuff. Um, and as I said, there are a handful of cases in the, in the U.S., right, over time. Now, in spring of 2009, and I'm sure people will remember this, um, there was a large outbreak in, of, of a new influenza isolate, new influenza A isolate, in, first in Veracruz and then in Mexico City. Um, it became widely transmitted, and, and Mexico is very aggressive about this. It, it basically locked Mexico City down. The, the health department basically locked Mexico City down. And there was not tremendous spread through, uh, through, through Mexico City. But there were a handful of cases that got out. Uh, there were a couple of cases in San Diego. Um, and it sort of eventually spread fairly widely across North America. There were lots of school closures. Uh, influenza is primarily a disease of school children. I mean, aside from ducks and pigs and stuff. It's also in humans. It's primarily a disease of school children. And it spreads rapidly through schools. If you close schools, you'll stop influenza outbreaks, but you won't get any kids educated, right? So it's, a, it's sort of a double-edged sword, right? Um, so there was a, um, uh, you know, the, the, all the buttons got pushed. Um, the uh, uh, President Obama ordered the National Strategic Stockpile to release antiviral drugs. We have specific drugs that will treat influenza. 
um, and uh, with a big new appropriation. Uh, the World Health Organization declared a worldwide pandemic on the 11th of June, uh, which means that there's widespread transmission in various, um, uh, in, in multiple regions. Um, and it's, you know, basically, this is a disease that's continued to circulate it. It's in the vaccine now. Uh, it's the fourth component of the vaccine. Um, but it's, it's continued to circulate. But interestingly, this is a disease of middle-aged people. This is, what, um, this is what the epidemic curve looked like in Mexico. This is the number of cases. And the, um, and the blue is all of whatever this color is. The blue is the federal district of uh, Mexico City. And the red is all of Mexico. And see, there's no, you know, there's a, well, maybe this, there's some, well, maybe this, maybe this. Okay, this is not subtle. Okay, this is a real outbreak. Now, but this is the thing to, to, to look at. If you look at... Um, uh, cases, okay, by age group, you see these are uh, these are deaths, right? And these these are the this is different years, these different colors. But the 2009, you see this this distribution with this hump in the middle. It was just like the 1918-1919 flu, okay, and that's what made people so anxious uh, about this. Okay, this is a similar thing with these bumps in the middle, okay. And it turns out that there's a that this is probably a Central European or Central Asian strain of influenza that somehow got imported um, into Mexico into Mexico and then really spread uh, around the world. Okay, so we can figure this out genetically. And then the question is, how did this you know how where did this come from in the first place? And this was always sort of the this is actually not my child, although they've, they've done. They've done worse things than this. Yeah. Um, so this spread rapidly through the country. There were two waves of transmission that peaked in October 2009. All the other strains of influenza disappeared off the map, uh, at least temporarily. Uh, and by the end of this, in the spring of uh, 2010, the CDC was estimating that somewhere between around 50 to 80 million people had acquired uh, this, uh, this strain. Uh, with about somewhere between 19 and 39,000 hospitalizations and something like um, about somewhere between 10 and 20,000 deaths. There was a very good count of pediatric deaths uh, because most of the children would make it into intensive care units uh, where they would be cultured and you'd really know exactly what was happening. Um, but there are, um, but you know, this is, a, this is a substantial amount of morbidity and mortality. And th what this shows you. This is one of the ways we look at this, is that these are um, deaths, percentage of deaths by time in 122 cities in, in North America. And you can see here, when, they, when you get these spikes of, 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 uh, of higher than expected deaths, this, this black line is what's expected, right? Um, you, you start to worry about um, influenza. That was in this, this was the 70708 uh, year. But what you see here, um, is that this is the excess mortality uh, during this period of time. It doesn't look quite so bad as you'd think, uh, but it was, you know, it was substantial, and it occurred earlier in the year. See this early phase right here? It occurred earlier in the year than people expected, which is why everybody got so worried about the parallels with the 1918-19 uh, flu, at least here in the United States. In Europe, it was 
a different story. Um, there was a lot of very serious unhappiness in the European Parliament with the World Health Organization, um, and the uh, and it was something like only 20% of the French adult population was vaccinated uh, at the end of the day for this. So you can see that you get really, in different countries, you get very different sort of vaccine uptakes, and we can talk about that more. So why wasn't the, pan- oops, why wasn't the pandemic worse? Well, to start with, it wasn't a non-existent, a non-event. It was a bad, this was a bad outbreak. Uh, as I s- showed you with, you know, 10 to 20,000 uh, deaths that you wouldn't have expected. There's a fabulous resource that takes um, has banked blood from blood donors, and has that arrayed by what decade they were born. So you could, and actually it goes back into the 1870s. Um, and so they tested it, the strain against those sera, uh, against those blood samples. And it turns out that people who were born before 1950 actually had some some prior sort of immunologic knowledge of this strain for whatever reason. And so that was one of the things, was that there was not a lot of death in older people uh, who were born in 1950 and, and, and earlier. So that's one thing. So we got lucky on that one. Um, there, was, there were very aggressive control measures with all the school closings and all the immunizations. Uh, most of the circulating strains were sensitive to the antiviral drug that we used. So that's good. We have much better medical care, you know, including uses of ventilators and things like that, that save people that wouldn't have been saved in 1918 and 1919. And there was a, there was a really, you know, we were really concerned that this would, um, uh, that people with HIV infection would die in droves uh, with this. And it, and it didn't happen here, and it really didn't happen in South Africa either, where there was also a fairly large epidemic. Why that is, it's still not clear. Let me move on to another problem, antibiotic uh, resistance. This is a huge problem, uh, and this is one of the things we really, 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 really worry about, uh, the de- decrease in um, um, uh, dramatic increase in antimicrobial resistance in community-acquired pathogens. If you go up here to, like, the seventh floor, wherever the ICUs are, you know, there are lots of resistant organisms there. If you go out to St. Francis Woods, there are not a lot, Okay. And, you know, the main things are that, you know, antibiotics get overused. They create selective pressure on these organisms, and the organisms will mutate in order to survive. They'll def- develop their own defense mechanisms. Um, and then they can, um, uh, so they develop these point mutations. And then at least some things, in some organisms, they can actually give pieces of DNA. They'll, they'll reach out with their little tentacles and touch another organism and transfer the piece of DNA across. You know, I, I don't ask teleologically why that's happening, but I don't have any idea. But it's something that's, um, I think, that's uh, underappreciated uh, is the amount of resistance we're facing and the uh, drug resistance we're facing. And also the pharmaceutical industry is not particularly enamored of producing antibiotics. Uh, you want a disease, you know, if you're a pharmaceutical company, you want a drug that somebody's going to, uh, somebody with good insurance is going to take every day for the rest of their life. Right? You don't want something you're going to take for two weeks, and that's it. Right? And it's interesting, uh, Alexander Fleming, who was the guy who discovered penicillin, said, uh, but I'd like to sound a note of warning in 1945. 
it's not, it, it is not difficult to make microbes resistant to penicillin in the laboratory by exposing them to concentrations not sufficient to kill them, and the same thing has occasionally happened in the body. So he called it, um, you know, 70 years ago. So uh, Ebola. So there was, in 1968, not 1976, I took that slide out, there was an outbreak of a previously unknown hemorrhagic fever in three cities in Europe, which were Belgrade, Frankfurt, and Marburg. Marburg's a university town in Germany. They're all in people who worked with, with primates or with primate tissue in laboratories or their direct family contacts. It turns out that this was a, this, the virus that caused this uh, is a, was the first time this had been seen, and it's, a, um, um, it's, it's called a phylovirus, and I'll show you in a second. Eight years later, there was a, an outbreak in a mission hospital in northern Zaire, uh, near the Ebola River, um, with 318 cases and an 88% case fatality rate. And then soon afterwards, like weeks afterwards, another outbreak was recognized in southern Sudan with 254 cases and a 53% mortality rate. They were both caused by this new virus that was closely related to the Marburg virus but wasn't, um, called Ebola. And the reason it spread around so rapidly was that these were very poor, poor mission hospitals. They, they reused needles and syringes uh, and therapeutically, plus there was a lot of spread to the, uh, to the medical and nursing staffs. So these are single-stranded RNA viruses. There are five, five Ebola species. Um, and we can talk about these more if people are interested. But so you have Marburg and then these five Ebola species. These are bad guys. These are seriously bad guys. Um, and... They're very poorly adapted to humans, if you want to use that sort of in those terms. Um, and people say, so the length is 40,000 base pairs. People say, does this thing mutate? And you say, yeah, yeah, duh, of course. It's, you know, with 40,000 base pairs, there are, two, there are two mutations every replication cycle. So it has a chance, so it's going to be changing constantly. People get this by being in contact with, the, uh, with body fluids from people who are sick with Ebola. Okay, that means vomitus, feces, urine, sweat, breast milk—you name it, saliva—you name it. Uh, as people get sicker, they are—they are have extraordinarily high concentrations of this virus that is leaking out of them. The second thing is is that when people die, they have, that's when they have the highest viral concentrations. And in traditional burial practices, where people are are elaborately washed and uh, prepared for burial to be buried in shrouds. There's no cremation. Um, it's a, uh, this is another big amplifying factor. And in the current Ebola uh, outbreak, there was a traditional healer, um, a woman who died from Ebola, and there are something like 14 secondary cases among people who had helped prepare her body for, for burial. Okay. Um, and then... Uh, Probably this is a disease of bats. Um, and in my world of infectious disease epidemiology, when you don't know what's going on, you always say it's the bats. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, they always get blamed for everything. Uh, but in this case, it's probably true. Marburg virus is known to be a disease of bats, and it, it, bats that live in caves in Central Africa, and there are outbreaks every once in a while among miners. You know, people are in mining uh, bat guano for, as a phosphate source. 
Um, and what had happened in the western part of Africa, this is Sierra Leone, Liberia, as the rubber industry collapsed, it was kind of replaced by palm oil plantations. And so each, uh, and the, the bats, these are fruit bats, so they like palm fruit, right? And I, it's been described as every palm fruit piece has a bat hanging on it. Uh, so they became a real, as sort of an attractive nuisance, and the bats can fly, obviously, and they migrate a lot. Um, kind of flew from, made it up from Central Africa, or you know, sort of relocated from where they're uh, from, or, or there's just unrecognized transmission, uh, and did very well, propagated, had lots of baby baby batlets, um, and uh, because of these palm plantations. So primary transmission is likely from fruit bats. The, the index case was a two-year-old child, and the thought is that that child picked up a piece of fruit that a bat. These bats are not fastidious about this fruit. They leave a big trail of trash behind them, just like a like a thirteen-year-old, right? Um, and the thought is that this child picked up a piece of fruit and um, had direct contact with it for that for that reason. Um, there's secondary transmission, which can either be through these kind of needle reuse practices, which we've gotten away from, luckily, but also from uh, contact with body fluids. And what happens is, is that when people are taken care of at home, they are sick, 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 sick. And um, the uh, people who take care of them get exposed to large volumes of, of very infectious body fluids. And if they're not wearing gloves and if they're not wearing protective stuff, they get infected very easily. Uh, the burial preparation I talked about, and highest risk are healthcare workers, and there have been about 400 and something cases in healthcare workers in these in these countries with about you know 50 percent mortality. Okay, the other thing to note here, at, at least the 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 sort of um, the fa- the party line, is that you only transmit this virus when you're sick. You don't that your symptoms uh, coincide, symptom onset coincides with high enough levels of virus circulating in you that you can infect other people. Now, that's probably not exactly right, but it's plenty close to being right. So that's why we screen people with temperatures, right, and say, okay, you, you have a fever. You can't come in the country. You go over here to this tent. We'll send Governor Christie over to talk to you, whatever they do. And the, the... uh, interesting thing, and bear with me on these kind of these numbers. So, if a patient is hospitalized, their risk of transmitting it to another person is about 0.12. That means for every eight people hospitalized, there'll be one secondary case. If they're kept at home, or they're giving them gloves and 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 you know plastic sheeting and things like that, so they can actually kind of keep, um, you know, provide some modicum of infection control. It's more like one in uh, five patients will infect one secondary case. If they're just at home with no effective isolation, it's more like one patient will infect two people. Right? And that's what went on for a very long, 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 long time uh, in uh, Sierra Leone and Liberia and Guinea uh, before this uh, got more under control. These are what the symptoms are. Fever, headache, um, hiccups are one of these very characteristic signs. Um, about half will develop bleeding or unexplained uh, bruising, and the symptoms appear within 2 to 21 days. Again, this 21 days, is this is the magical quarantine period. Okay. And this is what this unfortunate guy has, is, is bleeding from his gums. 
Uh, let's skip this. This is what the incubation period looks like. You can see that most people get sick in the first week, but there's this long tail out here. And again, the, what, we, what CDC has said and the World Health Organization is if, if you've been exposed and you're not, if you have not developed symptoms in 21 days, you're out of the woods. What they say to countries is if you've had cases and there are no new cases in 42 days, you're out of the woods. So the transmission, the way we prevent transmission uh, is, you know, there are some vaccines in trial right now, but the real premium is put on recognizing people who are sick and infectious and moving them out of their houses where they're going to infect other people and moving them into isolation in these Ebola treatment units or some of the other kinds of things, and also the safe burial practices. And this is where we are right now as of, as of the, uh, Monday or Sunday. There have been 25,000 recognized cases um, um, with 10,000 recognized deaths. Uh, there were uh, continue to be cases last week, although there were no new cases in Liberia last week, which is a huge accomplishment. There have been a number of, of sort of extra sort of smallish outbreaks. There are eight cases in Mali with a, with a transmission to a nurse. There's a single imported case in Senegal, which is next door. In the U.S., there have been 10 cases, um, and there have been two transmissions to the nurses in, in Dallas. In Spain, there's been a, a, transmission, to a, a transmission to a nurse in, in Madrid. And in Nigeria, there are three generations of transmission but 20, uh, with 20 cases, and I can't remember, I think maybe eight deaths. When you go home tonight and say your prayers, you should be thanking the, the Nigerian Ministry of Health for the extraordinary efforts of keeping this under, under control. People did not have the have slightest idea that they could pull this off. They had something like 20,000 contact visits uh, uh, and did a remarkable job, uh, a truly remarkable job of keeping this under control. This could have spread through Lagos and uh, gone on to every international carrier and flown all over the world in a heartbeat. And they got on it very quickly and really kept it under control. This is where Gwekadu is, this little town here in, in Guinea. Um, this is the sort of Parrot's Beak area where, with Liberia and Sierra Leone. It's where the first case was. So you can see how it could spread across the border uh, fairly quickly. I would, so I got to do, I can't resist a geography lesson. So, how many countries have the word Guinea in their names? More. Four, okay? What's the first one? Papua New Guinea. That's the hard one to get, okay? Papua New Guinea, Guinea, the Republic of Guinea, which was French Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, which was Portuguese Guinea, and Equatorial Guinea, uh, which was the Spanish uh, part. And, you know, all my students say, oh, I want to go work in Africa, and I speak fluent Spanish. And I said, oh, I hope you like Equatorial Guinea, because that's the only country where they speak Spanish in Africa, so... Um, this is what it looks like uh, currently in terms of kind of a density map. This is cumulative cases. Uh, and the, the new cases tend to are more urban here. And this is where Freetown is, the capital of Sierra Leone. And this is where Conakry is, the capital of, of Guinea. Uh, but you can see in the, even here when this map was drawn, there have been cases in the last 21 days. And this is where Monrovia is in uh, the capital of Liberia. But Liberia is really kind of out of the woods. So the core interventions to start, stop this are exhaustive case finding, 
um, and contact tracing, where you basically find all the contacts of people, put them in quarantine, and follow them daily for 21 days. Um, if people are sick, you bring them in and you put them in isolation. There's a difference between the words quarantine and isolation. Quarantine refers to people who are it's from the Latin for 40, which was the number of days the Venetians made ships lie offshore during the bubonic plague to make sure that there's nobody infected on board. Um, and uh, so quarantine is to take people who've been exposed and kind of keep them separate and, make, and see if they get sick or not. And if they get sick, they move to isolation. Isolation is for people who are known to be sick and infectious. So you're isolating them from other people. Okay. Um, there's meticulous infection control involved, and you see these space piece, pe- pictures of people in spacesuits, which are incredibly uncomfortable to wear and incredibly difficult to work in. Um, and these units are not well lit, and you're fumbling around trying to start IVs and what amounts to <coughs> kitchen gloves, like dishwashing gloves, you know, with goggles that fog up. And, you know, and people really only can work for a couple of hours, and they have to come out, rehydrate, and go back in. Remember, you're working in tropical areas here. Um, the, there are a whole bunch of community strategies uh, that have been employed, some more successfully than others. Um, but, you know, it's kind of gradually coming around, and I think the most remarkable thing, this is called ELWA-3, which was the big Medicine Sans Frontier Doctors Without Borders uh, treatment uh, center in Monrovia, has had no new patients for three weeks, right? So that's an extraordinary accomplishment. Um, in the U.S., there have been seven healthcare workers evacuated. There have been five that have been successfully treated, one death and one hospitalization, um, you know the story about the guy, poor guy in Dallas, who went back to the hospital twice before they diagnosed him and admitted him. Um, both of the women who were infected were treated successfully. Um, the way we do it is we route everybody through a handful of airports, um, and um, there are about 100 people a day coming back from these countries, coming into the U.S. from these countries. They have their temperatures taken. They're seen by uh, public health service officers from CDC. If they're febrile or symptomatic, they have fevers or are symptomatic, they'll get called off and won't be and, and will basically go straight to hospital. Uh, if they're uh, if they have no symptoms and have no fever, um, they'll be allowed to fly on to their destination. Um, there are basically four levels of risk that that get they get assigned a level of risk, and depending on their level of risk, they're visited. Uh, they're basically visited daily by the health department, by the local health department, uh, who takes their temperature and examines them and makes sure they're not developing disease. So that's Ebola. Um, so this is the CDC's big strategy for preventing in emerging infectious diseases, just to wrap this up. Um, and, uh, you know, these are the, uh, these are the priority areas. Uh, antimicrobial resistance, food and water safety, Vectors and animal health, I, I do tons of stuff with the veterinary school, and it's always a great education to go deal with them. Blood safety, trying to keep you know, transfusions safe. Um, one of the things we become very interested in are infections that cause chronic disease. There was recognition in the 1980s that most gastric ulcers were caused by, most stomach ulcers were caused by a bacterium. Uh, and the thought is there may be a few more things like that lurking out there. Opportunistic infections in people who are immunosuppressed, either because of disease or therapeutically. Um, 
better outcomes, um, uh, better infection control uh, from, in mothers and babies, the health of refugees and travelers, and, and vaccine development. So the, um, you know, so the risk factors, you know, again, modern medicine and biology are, are sort of lurking here. The overuse of antibiotics is extreme, and it's vastly worse in veterinary medicine than it is in human medicine. Antibiotics are used something like 80% of the by weight of antibiotics produced in the United States going to cattle feed as a nonspecific growth promoter. And you can imagine those are not therapeutic doses, and what they're going to do is select for resistance. Um, do we have increased susceptibility to low-grade pathogens because of immunosuppression? We have increased efficiency of transmission, right? Loma Linda, they're fond of transplanting baboon hearts into babies um, as a sort of tidying them over until a human heart comes along. I cannot imagine, I mean, okay, okay, aspirating the blood out of the duck's no, or the chicken's nostrils during the cockfights is one thing, but transplanting a heart is, you know, that sort of really crosses the species barrier. Um, um, environmental uh, degradation, as I said, and then biological warfare and, and terrorism. I knew anthrax was on this thing. I, gotta, uh, I wanted to wrap it up, but I just wanted to also say I'm happy to talk about biological warfare uh, as well, which is a real serious problem. So I think I'll stop there, leave you with these thoughts, and answer any questions. Yeah, in the back. Uh, what are the chances of UCSF getting involved? Uh, now? Probably pretty low. I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. The question was, what are the chances of UCSF getting an Ebola patient? I think now they're pretty low. Um, uh, we have two biocontainment beds at Mount Zion and elaborate procedures designed to take care of patients with you know, 90 volunteers trained to provide care. Uh, I think we're, you know, we're really well prepared for it, but just you know, we're on the wrong side of the country. We're on the wrong side of the continent, and... It would have to be people who were here already who got sick. Um, actually, interestingly, UCSF, as opposed to many other major academic medical centers in the United States, had a policy very early on that said, we recognize our role in protecting the public health of the people of California, and the best way to do that is to have people in West Africa treating patients and trying to contain this. Whereas others, you know, my, my alma mater in Palo Alto, among others, basically dug their heads in the sand and said, if you go to West Africa, you're on your own. You don't have, we're going to cancel your insurance. Good luck, right? Not exactly welcoming, right? So we, were, we had a very different take on this. Yes, please. If someone um, who has Ebola is put in an isolation ward, how does that affect their probability of dying? So the question is, if somebody with Ebola is put into an isolation ward, how does that affect their probability of, of dying? Well, they're put into intensive care units. I mean, so, so there's the U.S. and Africa. So in, in Africa, it's actually there are these things, Ebola treatment units, which are, you know, they're, by some standards, they're relatively sophisticated. They basically can give intravenous fluids and oxygen, antibiotics, uh, provide some nutritional support, but they're not going to do intubation. They're not going to do dialysis. They're not going to do the kinds of heavy-duty uh, intensive care kinds of things that we do here. In, in the best hands, it reduces the mortality rate from about 50% to about 30%. Um, we would think here in the U.S., if we, had a, if we had a big rash of patients, we would probably be running a mortality rate something in the 20% range, probably 20, 10 to 20% range. It's a very serious disease, and there's lots of organ system collapse. 
So the, the isolation units in Africa are designed to provide high levels of care as well as to prevent secondary transmission, higher levels of care. Yes, please. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so the question was what hypotheses have been put out about explaining the increased mortality, the sort of W-shaped curve of middle-aged people in the Spanish flu. So first of all, let me tell you about Spanish flu. So the, the term Spanish flu was because it was first reported from Spain because there were press restrictions in France and Britain, and they didn't report it, but Spain was a neutral country and reported it. And even they had probably much less than France and Britain did. It got labeled as the Spanish flu. So it's, you know, it's problems with being a free press. You sort of pick up a, a, few, a few hits along the way. Um, the thought is, is that because there was so much virus, um, there's something called cytokine storm where you basically, your body overreacts uh, to, the, to the load of viruses and basically has a lethal uh, immunologic reaction. It happens with some other diseases uh, as well, but that's the, that's the thought. It's not, nobody really knows, but that's the, at least the, the supposition right now. So the, the questions were, is WHO, the World Health Organization, the responsible party for kind of leading the way, conducting research, leading the, leading the uh, response? And then secondly is, uh, do you get a, do you, can you shortcut FDA, right? So the World Health Organization should be the responsible body, but they're very slow to react, and there are all these, this is a complicated question. And people are now trying to sort of go back in retrospect and work this out. Um, the Europeans have, or the European Union has organized its own central body for responding to outbreaks in the European Union. Most of the actions actually in like Russia and, you know, the stands and stuff. And that's called European CDC, ECDC. And so there's a real, there, there's some push, especially coming from Margaret Chan, who's the director general of WHO and others, to create an African CDC that would really be able to work across the continent. Uh, there are lots of political issues at play there. And, you know, you've got 76 different countries, you know, and the chances of somebody saying, you do this, you do that, eh, tough, tough. There, there is, in West Africa, there is this uh, kind of a armed forces cooperation, a, a thing called ECOWAS, where they, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's basically a shared military response for, um, for problems. Um, but, yeah, I, maybe. It, it might work and it, it might not. We're just... We're just hoping it's not called ACDC when they finish it. But, um, the, uh, and then the, in terms of circumventing, the, the sort of fast-tracking stuff through FDA, uh, you know, none of this stuff's going to be used in the United States. So, I mean, yeah, it, it does, you can fast-track this somewhat, um, but it's, you know, it's still, it's still relatively slow going. Now, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the background stuff for this is funded by, uh, by the Defense Department. And they're kind of on a different track. Uh, but if it's going to be commercially available, it has to go back through, uh, through um, FDA or the European Medicines Agency or the WHO for basically Africa. So the, so the question, I have to repeat the questions for, the, for our television audience. Um, so the, the Spanish influenza was H1N1, then we got H2N2, then H3N2, and then we came back to 2009, and then H5N1, which we left out. And then coming back to, uh, to 2009, it was H1N1 uh, again. That was a strain that was circulating in swine, not, not in people. And, it, and the, the crossover was from swine to people. Um, and so that was a kind of a whole other world out there of, 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 of influenza viruses circulating. And because, you know, 
pigs that you raise for slaughter don't, you know, they don't live that long, right? You don't get these sort of progressively higher levels of immunity. So basically, you know, they get, you know, the, the, the virus, a single strain can be sustained for longer periods of time. And they do have some resortment going on in them. But that was basically a pig strain that got into humans and then spread. N- not necessarily, not, I'm sorry, so the question was, is the, will the initial strain be H1N1? And not necessarily, it could have, this could have been H5N1 from ducks or something um, that, got, that got established and spread. The question's not so much how efficiently it can live in other animals. The question is how efficiently it can be transmitted from human to human. And that's where you get into these, you know, that, that's what causes epidemics. So, so the question is about the animals that carry it and, and you know, kind of why birds and, and all sorts. Everybody has back, everybody has microorganisms. We could go down to the fish and the deepest fissure of the Marianas Trench and they'd have bacteria and they'd have their own parasites. Um, it's, the question is, is, is what comes into contact with humans. The birds are important because they migrate. Bats migrate as well. So they can go over long distances um, and then when they're in these sort of mosquito to other bird cycles, humans and horses can become incidentally infected. That's why birds are important because they migrate. You know, it's like, you know, it's like airplanes, right? It's the same, same idea that you can get sort of long distance spread of disease. Now, if we, you know, we go up here onto the, onto the medicine wards and look at all the patients with infection, we're not going to see very many diseases that have been directly transmitted from birds. But we will see diseases that were transmitted from cattle. Tuberculosis is a cattle disease that was derived from cows probably in Egyptian times or whenever uh, and is now established in human populations. So a lot of the diseases we see typically, HIV is a primate disease, right? A lot of the diseases we see typically here in the hospital have animal origins, although they may not have come origi- you know, in this last instance. The, the last transmission wasn't from an animal. I'm afraid I need to run, but thank you very much. It's really a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.